Well, let us turn for our reading this evening to the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. And while you are turning to that passage, let me just give a little bit of explanation and to say what a, a blessing it has been to join with the brothers on Wednesday mornings for our early morning Bible study. Let me speak to the men for a moment who are um, not at their best at 6 a.m. I want to assure you that I'm one of them. And uh, my mind goes back to uh, studying in Scotland, and um, it gets quite discouraging if you're better at burning the candle late in the day than earlier in the day when you hear that every great Christian got up at the crack of dawn and they'd done so much with the day while you're still thinking about when you're going to get up. And then I came across um, the life of a Presbyterian, Benjamin uh, Morgan Palmer. And uh, no, actually it was James Henley Thornwell. And it was the first Christian biography that I read in which he worked late and got up late. And that was massively encouraging to me. Still is. But when we came to Little Farms and uh, thought, well, I need some midweek spiritual nourishment, I took, uh, took a, a gulp and said, okay, let me try this 6 a.m. Bible study. And I want to say what a blessing it has been. And the reason for saying that is that the sermon tonight comes as a result of the inspiration received at 6 a.m., and when Pastor Bob asked me to preach tonight, I thought this would be a marvelous passage uh, on which to focus our attention. I'm not sure I can do it justice. In fact, I'm pretty sure I can't. But I want to say that first of all, and also then to say that we heard this morning from Revelation 12, and we'll be a lot in Revelation 20 tonight. I'm sort of glad Pastor Bob stopped the sermon this morning when he did, <laughs> not for the sake of the time but so that I have something to say tonight. And then to say that um, the two passages, Daniel 7 and uh, Revelation 12 and follow on Revelation 20, dovetail wonderfully, complement each other, and I trust that you will see a continuation of the victory that we have in Jesus Christ as we come to the passage this evening. Well, Daniel 7, let us hear God's word. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it, and behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh." After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, 
and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever forever and ever. And I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than all its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom 
and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. May God bless this reading of his holy word. Father in, Father in heaven, we give thanks for this portion of scripture, and we just ask that you'd give us insight and wisdom as we study this portion, and just bless Dr. Trumper, too, as he brings this to us. Just give him clarity of mind, too, and of voice, we pray, and ask your blessing on us, and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the title of our message this evening is Expectations of the Second Advent, and we are looking together, especially tonight, at verses 21 and 22 of Daniel chapter 7. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. The festival of Advent was uh, started in about the 4th and 5th century in Spain and Gaul, which is modern-day France. And when you look at the uh, history of the season of Advent, you will notice that uh, the focus of Advent has gone back and forth between celebrating the first coming of the Lord Jesus and looking to the second coming. There seems some uncertainty within the festival as to which of those foci are in view. And so we sing our Advent hymns, don't we, with a view to the coming of Christ the first time, knowing that He's already come, but in the minds of God's people is the anticipation that this Christ who came is going to come again. Now, of course, the first Advent and the second Advent of the Lord Jesus Christ are not symmetrical. When Christ came the first time, the kingdom came with him. That's how Matthew's record of Jesus' ministry began or begins. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. But when Jesus returns, it will be the fulfillment of the kingdom. That's one of the differences. And then, of course, there is a second major difference. In the first, Christ comes to reign over us for our salvation but when He returns, it is so that we may reign with Christ in possession of the kingdom that will then be fulfilled. So when we come to Daniel 7, we find that this theme of the kingdom of heaven is very relevant to Daniel. God has this universal reign which is permanent, but in terms of this glorious subset, what we call the kingdom of heaven, it is yet to come. And so Daniel receives this dream and visions, as we're told here in the opening of chapter 7, and he receives them in a day which was very significant. First of all, it was a day of humbling. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, verse 1, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head. Well, the people of God have lost their kingdom. They are in exile, 
and we can date the exile from 605 BC through to 536 BC. And by this time, we're in the year 541 BC, the Jews have been in exile, at least those who were first deported in 605, for 64 years. And the exile is drawing near to a close. And we know that from Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. The Lord speaks through Jeremiah, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So we wonder what we are to do with the Babylonian captivity of God's people. One of the things we need to understand in the day of humbling that the Jews were experiencing here is that this was not unique to them. This picture of the Babylonian captivity of God's people is a picture of the church in her weakness on account of the sins that they have committed against God. In the context here, they have smashed repeatedly the covenant of God. And they've gone so far as to mock the servants of God who called them to turn back to God, who called them to repent. And if you want any evidence that this is a picture which keeps cropping up, our minds go back to the Reformation. Our minds go to 1520 and Martin Luther's writing of a tract, the Babylonian captivity of the church. It's an episode in church history where instead of transforming the world, the church is overcome by the world. And so I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say that we are in the midst or are entering into a Babylonian captivity of the church, whereby not following the Word of God as we could have and should have and not listening to those servants of God who have stuck closely to the Word of God, we find ourselves weak, we find ourselves powerless, we find ourselves overcome by the world, unable to influence the society as we could do and should do, and needing to return to God. So it's a day of humbling. And then the second thing we notice about the context of what Daniel sees here is that it was a day of hope. In two years' time, the last reign of the Babylonian empire will come to an end. Belshazzar had forgotten the conversion of his ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar. You could read of that at the end of chapter 4. And in the final year of his reign, which only lasted three years, we read in chapter 5, that he produces this great feast, this great banquet. He calls together a thousand of his lords. And in the midst of this drunken stupor, he gets out the vessels and the goblets from the temple which had been captured with the Lord's people. And they mock and ridicule the God of the Jews. And so we find at the end of uh, chapter 5 then that the judgment of God is swift. That very night, after the writing on the wall, Babylon is captured. Darius becomes king, and Belshazzar is killed. Darius reigned briefly before Cyrus rose to the throne, who would go on then to permit 
the return of the Jews from exile. And amid it all, amid all the chaos that's going on, God gives to Daniel a dream and visions of history unfolding from his day right to the end of history as we know it. The exile would end, but not the cosmic battle between God and the devil, and the devil and God. So note there in chapter 7, verse 3 and onwards, the four beasts. There is verse 3, the lion. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear, and it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Then we read of the ten horns, verse 8. I consider the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Well, you say, well, where's the hope in that? Well, the hope follows then by what Daniel sees of the Ancient of Days, verses 9 and 10, and again, verse 13 and 14. These empires are coming and going. But there is one in the heavens, the ancient of days, his clothing white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousands, that's a million, served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The ancient of days then is the one who is the hope amidst the rising and the falling of these beasts. And so we find then in chapter verses 13 and 14 then that one in human appearance comes before the ancient of days. It is, as we've seen before, a vision of Christ coming back from the fight, ascending into heaven. It is the sort of reverse side of what we get to see. We get to see Christ ascending up on high, personally, suddenly, visibly, gloriously. But here in verses 13 and 14, we see the other side from heaven's perspective as one in the appearance of a human comes before the ancient of days and to him is given power, dominion, glory, and might. That then explains the cross-reference in Revelation chapter 20 in which we are told what has happened on account of the victory of Christ at the cross. It might not seem this way to us, but if we were living in the first century, after millennia of darkness amongst the nations, 
we would understand better than perhaps we do today what is being spoken of in Revelation 20 in the first three verses. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the keys of the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. We are in that period, I believe. The millennial period, the figurative a thousand years following the resurrection of Jesus Christ and dead, his ascension up on high to him being given power, dominion, glory, and might. So the spread of the gospel is due not simply to the fact that the Christians of the first century were obedient to the call to take the gospel proactively to the nations, but because by dint of the victory of Christ on the cross, Satan has been, if not absolutely, then relatively imprisoned in chains so that the gospel can go forth. And it is for that reason then that when you come to the New Testament and you go to places like Acts 3, Acts 17, Romans 3, the writers of the New Testament speak of the past as the days of ignorance when Satan had so much more clout to hold the nations in darkness, to hold them in enslavement to sin. But now that Christ has come, now that he has fulfilled his work upon the cross, now that he has raised to life again, highly exalted with his people day by day, even unto the end of the age. That is why the gospel has gone out to the nations. We heard this morning, didn't we, about what God has done in China. It is quite possible that China soon will become the nation in the world with more Christians than any other nation. We have seen over the last century what God has done in Africa with more Christians, 631 million Christians, professing Christians on the continent of Africa, more than on any other continent. We are witnessing in our day what is happening in Iran, more people coming to faith than in the last 1,300 years. We are seeing the map change in India as more and more people come to faith, owning the faith in Jesus Christ in an evangelical sense. Satan is bound. In the daily details of our lives, it might not seem that. But when you look at the grand picture, we find that it's a day of humbling for the church, but it's also a day of hope. But then it's also a day of hermeneutics, verses 15 and 16. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. You might be wondering, well, what's hermeneutics? Hermeneutics, simply the discipline of interpretation. And he's given the interpretation, and what's the basic idea, verses 17 and 18? These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever. Well, we know with hindsight that the kingdoms are these. The lion is Babylonia, connected with the name of Nebuchadnezzar. The uh, 
Bear is Persia, connected with Cyrus, who's just about to come and conquer Babylon. The leopard is Greek, connected with the name of Alexandria. And then finally, there is the terrifying beast. Rome, connected with the reign of Julius Caesar and all those who followed in his train. And amid the rise of these kingdoms, the gospel goes on. But Daniel is especially concerned about the fourth beast, verses 19 and 20. Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze. The claws of bronze were not told us before. And which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. About the ten horns that were on its head and other horns that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. Well, what is happening here? Well, the ten horns then cover the powers of these new covenant days, influenced by Rome. And then the little horn comes along to arise before the end of history. And Daniel is given then to see beyond the first advent to the second advent, the saints possess the kingdom. But the lesson is this, that we are not to be complacent. You see, this is the importance of looking at all sorts of passages from Scripture. And this is why I'm saying that what we heard this morning is complemented by what we heard tonight. They are not intention. We have great victory in Christ. And yet the way in which that victory has been explained to us in Scripture reveals that there is coming a time when we shall know as the people of God that we are in a fight, perhaps more than we do now. It is said, I think with some truth, especially for those of us living in the comfort of the West, that we treat the Christian life like a playground rather than a battleground. Yes, Christ has won a tremendous victory at the cross, and he has raised high unto heaven. But there is still a war going on, and it will become very plain that we as the people of God need to wake up to that war, because Daniel then gives us, or at least the vision in Daniel 7 gives us, three expectations of what is to come. First of all, look in verse 21 then at the coming war. And I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Notice three features of the coming war. First of all, there's the antagonist. Repeated mentions of the little horn, verse 8, verse 20. Now again, verse 21, teach us that he comes late in the day. This fourth terrifying beast has ten horns or ten powers that are going to come forth from it. But finally then, there is going to come forth the little horn. And uh, he displaces the prior powers. He leads to the uprooting of three of the horns. And he speaks great swaggering words. And he makes great claims and sees seems to outgrow the first horns. What are we talking about then? Well, according to Scripture, being its own interpreter, we're talking about the revelation of the Antichrist who is to come. 
We shall not see Satan personally stomping around the world, but we will see his chief agent. This was the expectation of God's people throughout these last days. 1 John 2.18. Children, it is the last hour, meaning we have entered the last days. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. In other words, he's saying there is a spirit of Antichrist abroad, but let us not be duped into thinking that things will always be the same, the Antichrist spirit. There is going to come one who is the Antichrist, speaking swaggering words, making great claims. And the Apostle Paul speaks of this also in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 7. Let's turn to that for a moment. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know that what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The antagonist, the antichrist. But then we learn the antagonized. The antagonized are the saints with whom the little horn makes war. The little horn or the Antichrist will have the saints in his sight. Who are the saints? Well, the saints are those who've been divinely and powerfully called out by God from the world. The saints are those, as the term means, the holy ones, who are not simply belonging in some formal or externalized way to the church. They are actually the ones who are pursuing holiness, who aggravate the Antichrist because they look different from the world and because Antichrist cannot get his hold over them. And as they not only exercise their pursuit of holiness, but make decisions which go against the whole thrust of what Antichrist is trying to do, that's when they'll feel the war. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, whether we're beginning to feel that in our own day. It's one thing to have a personal holiness and to seek holiness. But you go out into the public square and you begin to implement decisions that don't go along with what the spirit, at least, of Antichrist wants you to do. And you will feel that you're in a war. I have read over recent years of a young Christian girl captaining her soccer team, refusing to wear a rainbow armband as captain of the team, cancelled. You can think of those who, looking for employment, well, sorry, 
You're asking me to work on the Lord's day, but it's not a work of necessity. It's not a work of mercy. Cancelled. We're in a war, but there's coming a day when that war will be so evident. And then there is the antagonism. What happens? Well, in this season of conflict, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. That hatred becomes very relevant for Daniel sees the prevailing of the little horn through the release of Satan that is to come. And that's what uh, Revelation 20 talks of in verse 4, that Satan is going to be released for a short time before the end. After that, he must be released for a little while. And as Pastor Bob read at the end of the sermon this morning, what do we find? Verses 7 to 9a. When the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand of the sea, they marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. What are we being told? We'll know that we're in this little season when the nations at large are deceived. When Gog and Magog, these Old Testament figures, are enlisted, which are symbolic of the nations. When the saints are outnumbered, seemingly, and they are encircled, ready for the final kill. We might begin to enter into the last of the last days in our days. Note the convergence of postmodern expectations throughout the world. It amazes me, as perhaps it amazes you. In this age of technological excellence, that one idea in one area quickly spreads throughout the land. Then it spreads across the continent. Then it spreads across the Atlantic. Then it spreads across the Pacific. And suddenly everybody is doing the same thing. And you dare not go against the stream. I really do wonder if that is what separates the current conflict that we are in from conflicts that have gone before. A converging hatred of Christ. Perhaps you noticed that this Christmas. I send gifts on Amazon to my family. And some of them I sent gift cards. I could not find a single gift card with the name of Christ apart from Christmas total expunging of Jesus Christ. And this is happening under our noses. And we wonder whether the coming war has finally come. And you see the persecuted church throughout the world, and you wonder who is going to speak up for the persecuted church? Who is going to speak up for those who are being butchered in Nigeria? The powers that be seem very slow to speak out and to hold that government to account. Why? Because they are Christians, you see. And you see this squeezing between those who have another gospel and another God trying to squeeze the Christian church. And then you have the secularists in the West, and they are trying to squeeze the Christian church. And you get the sense that there is this encircling of the saints which is beginning to happen. Now, don't misread me. I'm not stating dogmatically that the coming war has come, but I do wonder about it. And whether it's come or not, we need to be ready for that war. That's the bad news. And then secondly, the second expectation, the coming wonder, verse 22. 
A. Notice what happens here. We find that although the devil makes war against the saints and prevails over them, we read, until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. The ancient of days comes. Pastor Bob alluded to this this morning. There are four things in this that amaze us. The first is we'll be amazed at the defeat of the little horn and lurking behind the little horn or the Antichrist. We'll be amazed at the defeat of Satan. Why will we be amazed? Well, it'll be so sudden and so contrary until the Ancient of Days comes. And you can go to Revelation 20, the fire comes. Just as the saints are encircled, then the fire comes. And you can go to 2 Thessalonians 2.8, then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill by the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This sudden reversal is so typical of God. He is rarely early but never late and he snatches Satan's victory from his jaws. We'll be amazed by the defeat. Secondly, we'll be amazed at the divine. We think of history, don't we, as being wrapped up by the return of Jesus Christ and certainly he will return. But that's not what the text says. The text says until the ancient of days comes. And so we need to put the return of Christ in the broader context of what is going to happen on that great day. Let me list quickly several things that are going to happen. Christ is going to return, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. A cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. Then what's going to happen? The rapture of the saints. Yes, we do believe in the rapture, even if we only believe in the final rapture. The rapture of the saints. The dead in Christ will rise first, and those saints surrounded by Satan, the Antichrist, and his forces will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and we'll see the elements destroyed with fervent heat. Have you ever wondered why are we going to be caught up in the air? It seems to me that we're going to be caught up in the air because of the fire coming down. And what's the fire going to do? It's going to purge this old earth of all its impurities, of all its sin, of all its fallenness. And there's going to be the devil cast into the lake of fire. Antichrist is going to be dealt with. And what's going to be happening? We're going to be caught up with the Lord in the air. And what are we going to be doing in the air? We're going to be seeing all this happen. We're going to see the regeneration of the cosmos just as we have known in our own souls the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. What does Peter write? The heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then what's going to happen? The ancient of days is going to come. Well, who is the ancient of days? The ancient of days is the one already mentioned, verses 9 to 10. The everlasting deity sitting on his throne. You see, we talk, don't we, about dying and going to heaven. That's not the fulfillment of the biblical vision. The biblical vision is not of us dying and going to heaven, but heaven coming to a regenerated cosmos when the ancient of days comes. And that's why Daniel sees in the vision, as interpreted for him, 
the ancient of days coming. In that term is encapsulated the return of Christ, the rapture of the saints, the regeneration of the cosmos. It'll be a glorious day and we'll be amazed at the divine. And then we're going to be amazed at the declaration. Again, verse 22, judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. Here are the saints, one moment, encircled by Satan and his chief agents, the Antichrist. With all the forces of the nations coming across the plains, there are the saints. We've got them. We've nailed them. Suddenly, the ancient of days comes. And what does he do? He says, these saints are mine. And you're not having them. Oh, some will have already endured the first resurrection. They have been beheaded for the word of God. They have refused the mark of the beast. But there will be those saints who are alive who will need to know that the ancient of days is coming. And as he comes, he says, these are mine, Satan. Off you go to an eternity in the lake of fire. These are mine. You are not having them. But there's something else. We'll be amazed at the delegation. Scholars have gone back and forth as to what verse 22 means here. And judgment was given for the saints. I tend to think both things are true. First of all, God will render the judgment for the holy ones. These are mine. They are vindicated. They are spared the defeat. They are victorious in Jesus Christ. But the Bible also testifies to something else going on. And you can go to 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3, where Paul, urging the saints in Corinth not to go to war or to court in the society, he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? He's saying, don't you understand what a defeat it is for the Christian church to go to law to solve out problems in the church? Don't you realize that the very people you stand before are the ones you're going to judge on the final day? And oh, what an embarrassment that would be to stand and judge a human judge who you've stood before in this life, trying to sort out the problems of the church, and now you are given by God, delegated by God, the task of judging him for his life. Paul says that should not be. And yet, in the vision here, it seems that Daniel sees this very reality. That part of our vindication will be the receiving from God the right to pass judgment as those united to Jesus Christ on those who have rebelled against God, who have hated Jesus Christ, who have persecuted the saints. And so we come to the third expectation, the final words of verse 22. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. In this life, the kingdom possesses us. Let me say to you tonight, if you are pondering your status with regard to Jesus Christ, and you say, well, I really 
I really love the thought of having Christ as my Savior. I just don't want him to reign over my life. You can't parcel out which bits of Christ you're going to receive. You can't do it. When a person trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, they trust in the whole person with all that Christ is to his people. And he is Savior and he is Lord, or in the context here, he is King. And so when a person comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, there's a counting of the cost. I'm no longer my own. I'm a member of the kingdom of heaven. And what happens as a member of the kingdom of heaven? Well, you see, King Jesus rules over me to subdue my own sins. And the beautiful thing about Christ ruling over my life is that he also defends me from the world and the devil. I am his and no one is going to snatch me from his hand. But what we see here is different. It's when we come to reign with Christ and we get to possess the kingdom. And so there are three things that we need to notice here. First of all, we receive the kingdom. To understand that, you have to go back to verse 18 where it talks about receiving and possessing the kingdom. Now, through faith, we receive the kingdom. But then on that day, we shall receive it in sight. And this is unpacked by the interpreter of the vision in verses 25 to 27. This is what's going to happen on that great day. The little horn shall speak words against the Most High. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. The, li <coughs> the little horn of the Antichrist is defeated. The kingdom of heaven swallows up all that Satan aspired to. And it's given to these weary saints who are hanging on by their fingernails saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. They receive the kingdom. Secondly, they retain the kingdom. Those receiving the kingdom possess it forever, verse 27. They can possess it totally on the one hand, and they possess it eternally on the other. But what is the kingdom? Well, it is fellowship with God in possession of his universal domain of God. We sang in the song service this evening, this is my Father's world. And the amazing thing is that in Christ... There's coming a day when we'll be able to say at his delegation, this too is, is our world, our renewed cosmos, our renewed universe. You see, sometimes we spiritualize our eternal hope. But there's something very concrete about it. Romans 4 verse 13, where it's said of Abraham that he's heir of the world. I think that's literal. That we will inherit 
from the God who doesn't die but shares it with us in grace, we will inherit this world then regenerated. Jesus speaks about the new world in Matthew 19, 28. Paul speaks about it in Romans 8, verse 18 forward. It's here in the Scriptures as well. And just as Satan has been unable to snatch us from Christ's hand, so he shall be unable to snatch the kingdom from us either. We receive the kingdom, we retain the kingdom. Thirdly, we realize the kingdom. Notice the end of verse 27. All dominion shall serve and obey them. Well, we'll realize it spiritually, of course, by speaking of the kingdom as material. I'm not eradicating the fact that it is fundamentally spiritual. Says Peter, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3.13. We shall have dominion over our corruptions, over the world that was and over the devil. All shall be holiness and all shall be love. But we come back to this. That the kingdom that we shall possess forever and forever and ever will be all that Eden was envisioned to be, except for this, that it cannot be ruined. It cannot be shaken. The gift of the kingdom will be inviolable because at that point, not only shall we not sin, we shall not be able to sin. We shall be completely whole and perfect in heaven. Genesis 1:28. subdue the creation and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the only utopia which will ever be realized. The promises of the kingdom to come are a lot more concrete than what we have considered them to be. The lion will indeed lie down with the lamb. All will be at peace in the kingdom of heaven. All the kingdoms that Satan has aspired after and failed to grasp are given to the weary saints and on this new earth, in this renewed cosmos. We shall be fully whole. We shall be fully satisfied. Yes, our satisfaction will be in God first and foremost. We shall be reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, that's all true, and it's marvelously true. But if we leave it there, it's a glorious half-truth. We shall be reigning in Christ in a universe which is as concrete as this. Regenerated. So what do we do with these expectations? Well, first of all, we ponder them. This is the hallmark of the faithful. Let's go back to the first advent. Mary pondered all these things in her heart. And what do we read here in verse 28? Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. He's not hiding the truth from the church, as Matthew Henry says. He's hiding the matter for the church. He can't go and tell Belshazzar this. But he writes down what he sees in the vision for the church. And here we are, 2,500 years later, benefiting from what was revealed to him in a dream and visions. Why? Because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Let us not faint in the day of adversity. Let us ponder these things. Yes, there's coming a war. 
and will be hanging onto the ropes until the Ancient of Days comes. And then the second thing we do with these expectations, we preach them. Matthew Henry continues, we keep the expectations in our hearts that they may be ready in our mouths. It's a startling reality that every single person around us will either be persevering in Christ or perishing without Him. Evangelism of our community is not an option. It is the outworking of hearts which understand the gravity of the issues with which we are dealing day by day, week by week, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. Robert Murray McShane, I walked through the fields of my parish and the thought suddenly occurred to me that all of my parishioners would soon day either be in heaven or in hell. The same remains the case. And then thirdly, we pray about them. We pray about these expectations. Ultimately, that the ancient of days will come. But as is true throughout Scripture, suffering first, then glory. We don't know where we're at in the calendar of God's dealings. But we know this, that when we grasp the spiritual battle into which we have been called, there's a reason why the Bible ends. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. I think it's been given to us in our day to understand something of the weight of the coming war. May God find us faithful. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would take hold of it and bless it to our minds and to our hearts, directing our wills accordingly. Pray that none of us may be found on that day outside of Christ. But Father, help us to take hold of your word, to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you, and to go out and to proclaim a living Savior who will be seen to reign unto the ages of eternity to come, and in some amazing way we shall reign with him. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.